Okay, well, please in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 to 8 this morning. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and its end, and it ends up being burned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask today that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, we know that all Scripture has been breathed out by you. All of it has been given to us by you, Lord, as a gift for our benefit, Lord, for the building up of our faith. And Lord, even those passages that are more difficult to understand, Lord, that they are granted for our benefit and that they are understandable for the building up of your people. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth today, that you would guard and keep us from error, and that we would walk in the pathway that is straight and narrow and true. Lord, teach us of the great danger of falling away. Lord, that it might bind our hearts even more closely to you and grant to us that endurance and that perseverance that are necessary in order to see you. So, Lord, bless us today with a right understanding of your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the apostle is urging the Hebrew Christians to press on to maturity. Because they had become dull of hearing, uh, they're not growing and maturing in their faith as they should. They've become stagnant, stuck in a state of immaturity because they're not hearing the word of God properly. So he urged them to leave the elementary teachings about the Christ, those foundational truths that must be learned and received at our salvation. These are the elementary teachings of Christ, that when a person is converted, right, he must have some understanding of Christian truth and doctrine. There must be a sufficient grasp of the gospel in order for someone to be saved. And the Hebrew Christians have understood to this degree, right? They have believed the gospel, and the apostle is confident that they are true believers. However, they're still not settled in their faith. They should be stable and firm on these elementary teachings of the Christ, yet they're still wavering on these truths. And there is the need for them to press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of these basic Christian doctrines that are suitable for infants in the faith. He described the work of the ministry as the laying of a foundation, right? This is what was done among them in their primary schooling when they were first instructed in those simple, clear, plain truths of the gospel. This is the laying of the foundation of the faith in their lives. 
But the whole purpose of laying this foundation is that one might erect a structure upon it. That when the foundation is laid and secured, then it is time to progress to the building of the house. And the house is not complete when the foundation is completed, but the building of the house has just begun. And so it is in the Christian faith as well. The laying of the foundation, right? Our faith when we first believe, right? This is good. It is great. It is a wonderful gift from God. But when we first believe, this is only the beginning of our course. There comes a point when it is time for us to move on, to grasp those simple elementary teachings about the Christ and move on to deeper mysteries, to a greater understanding of the gospel, to build upon that foundation so that we expand the body of doctrine and our understanding of salvation and the mysteries of God found in the person of Jesus Christ grow and mature. No one at their conversion has a mature understanding of Christ. But this is what all of us should be striving towards, to gain a more thorough, deeper, fuller understanding of Christian truth and doctrine. And this is what the apostle wants for them. But before he can move on to the building up of their faith with these deeper mysteries, the foundation must be secure. And this is where they are failing. He wants to move on, yet he's compelled by their infantile state to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are the elementary teachings about the Christ that he has laid the foundation of. They have received these things at their conversion. Now they need to build upon this body of doctrine. And that is what he's urging them to do, stirring them up to shake off their sluggishness and diligently attend to their salvation. Now he will add to this by giving to them a very severe warning. The great danger that will come upon those who continue in this perpetual state of being dull of hearing, right? Dullness of hearing, if not repented of, if we do not move past this, can lead to apostasy from the faith. And this is the danger that he's warning them of. So let's read Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, we mentioned last week, and we'll repeat it again, that it is very important for us to understand exactly what the apostle is saying, right? What is he saying? Who is he talking about, right? What is it that they have done in this passage and what he is not saying, who he's not talking about and what they have not done, right? It is very easy for one to abuse this passage so as to admit many unsettling doctrines and practices into the church that unsettle the faith of the people there. And this passage has been subject to abuse, to abuse and misuse through the years in various ways. An example of this would be in the early days of the church. Before Christianity became the favored religion of the Roman Empire, there were times and seasons when the church faced intense persecution, both from Jews and from the Gentiles, from those who were pagans. And during these times of persecution, it would be 
uh, a common experience, or there would be some who under the severity of their persecution and under the intensity of their trials would cave to their tormentors. There are some who would renounce Christ due to the severity of their torture, but who later would repent of this renouncing of Christ, this lapse of their faith. And so the church was faced with a dilemma in the very early days. What do we do with such persons? Those who have a lapse of faith who fell away during a time of torment, during a time of severe persecution. Can they be forgiven? Can they be admitted back into the church? Can they be allowed to receive communion again? And this was an early controversy that the church had to deal with. And one of those early church fathers was a man named Cyprian of Carthage. He was asked about three such brothers who had been tormented for many days, tortured for several days, who during their torture, they confessed Christ under severe torments, who were willing and ready to die for the Lord, but due to the length and the severity of their torture, eventually they caved and they renounced Christ. But then afterwards, they were very sorrowful. They were broken over what they had done. They repented of this sin. They had been associated with the church now again for three years, and the church was asking if it was okay for these three men to be admitted back to the Lord's table, having proven their repentance over the course of three years. Cyprian was asked what should be done with these brothers. And his conclusion was that yes, they can be forgiven and they can be admitted back into the fellowship of the church and back to the Lord's table. However, there was a group within the church called the Novatians who said that those who committed such sins could never be forgiven and they could never be allowed back into the church and they should never be served communion again ever. And the passage that they used to support this view was Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Others, following in their example, would forbid the hope of forgiveness and pardon to anyone who committed what they considered to be a great, scandalous sin after their baptism. If someone committed adultery or thievery or murder or something like that after their baptism but then repented of their sin, they would not allow them back into the church. They would not allow them to ever take communion again, and they would not give them any assurance of hope or the pardon of sin, no matter how sincere, no matter how genuine their repentance. And the basis for this very rigid stance toward them was Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And when one reads this in isolation from the rest of the Bible and is not using the analogy of faith, one might come to such a severe, uncharitable interpretation. But under this type of interpretation, who would be precluded from ever being in fellowship with the church? In the Bible, who would be precluded from the Lord's table? Well, would not the Apostle Peter, who denied our Lord and Master Jesus Christ during his time of trial uh, during his time when he was there being persecuted? Peter denied the Lord. And who committed a great scandalous sin? Did not David the prophet commit adultery and murder and lie? And yet under this interpretation, not even the prophet David would be admitted into the fellowship of the church. And this is the problem when people are interpreting scripture or reading scripture in isolation from the rest of the Bible. 
that we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We must use the analogy of faith and let Scripture be the best interpreter of Scripture. And if one came to this very severe, uncharitable position, it would prove to be a very dangerous interpretation because it would deny comfort and hope to those who so desperately need it, right? To someone like Peter, who denied Christ three times, had Christ come to him and said that you can never be forgiven of your sin, would he not have been left into a, a state of despair, of hopelessness, of ruin of his faith and of his soul? And so it would be in the church as well. If those who are repentant sinners, truly repentant, are denied any hope or assurance of salvation, of the forgiveness of sins by the church, by the body of Christ, then it will lead them to despair. The point being is that the word of God, it is the sword of the spirit. And if the sword of the spirit is not wielded properly, if it is not used in the correct way, then it can maim people. It can injure them and do damage to them if we're not using the word of God correctly. Others have used this passage to teach that one can lose and gain salvation repeatedly over the course of their life. That one can be truly saved, can truly have the forgiveness of sins, can be a child of God, be adopted into the family of God, and then at a later time can fall away from this state of salvation, from a state of grace, back into a state of sin and condemnation. That one can go from being a child of the devil to being a child of God, to being a child of the devil, and that this process can re be repeated over and over and over again throughout the course of his life. And I guess you would just have to hope that you died on a good day, that you died on a day when you were a child of God, or that you died in a moment of time when you were a child of God and that you were on the right side. However, with this interpretation, they're not even consistent with the passage and what the passage is teaching. Because typically those who believe that you can lose your salvation, they also believe that you can gain it again and that you can gain it back over and over again through the course of life. Yet if this passage is teaching that a true believer can fall away and come again under a state of condemnation, then it is also teaching that one such person can never be renewed again to repentance. Because it says here that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So if salvation can be lost, then it can never be gained again. Yet those who teach that it can go from having it to losing it to having it to lose it do not teach typically that once it is lost, it can never be recaptured. Now again, this interpretation is also very dangerous because it can lead to two unsettling outcomes. First, it can deny hope, assurance, right? The comfort of knowing that you're a child of God to those who are believers, right? It can lead to fear, trepidation, doubts, uncertainty in one's faith. For how can you ever know if you're saved? If salvation can be gained and lost and gained and lost over and over again, how can anyone ever have any hope of salvation? And what sin can cause one to lose their salvation? Is it any sin? Is it a sin of the heart, a sin of the mind, a sin of the tongue? Or is it only those sins in the body? Or is it only those things that are considered scandalous sins? 
Secondly, this is one danger, is it can deny hope because people never know whether they are true believers or not. The other thing that it can do is lead to a focus on outward forms of righteousness. Typically, a very legalistic adherence to man-made rules and regulations that they establish in order to convince themselves that they are righteous and that they have salvation and that they can never lose it. Or this idea of perfectionism, that they never sin so that they remain in this state. And typically when that is promoted in the church, then it leads to pride, it leads to envy, it leads to all sorts of infighting there amongst the body of Christ. It promotes pride and this false idea of perfectionism. So it can lead to severe doubts in this type of instability in the Christian faith. And that is contrary to what the scriptures want us to have. In 1 John 5, 13, the apostle there says that he has written these things to the church for what purpose? So that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the ministries of the apostle there amongst the brothers that he's writing to in 1 John is he wants the church to have assurance for them to know, to have certainty, to have confidence that they have eternal life. And this is what we need for our own hope in this current world. Also, there are those who through the years, private individuals, private Christians, who have been tormented in their own minds with thoughts that they have committed the sin leading to death, that they have committed the unpardonable sin, and therefore they can never be forgiven of their sins. There are those who have read what is described here in Hebrews 6, 1 to 8, and they become convinced that it is a true description of their own life, right? Because they still struggle with sin. But who doesn't struggle with sin? We all struggle with sin, and yet if you struggle with sin, and because you struggle with sin, then you conclude that this is speaking of you and true of you, then it will lead to despair. It will lead to fear. It will lead to torment in one's own mind and in one's own conscience. They read this and are convinced that it is a true description of their own life. And so they lose the joy, the comfort, the hope of salvation, right? If a man misapplies this passage to himself, if it's not addressing his situation, then he's heaping upon himself unnecessary burdens there upon his own soul. And it can cause much spiritual harm and consternation. Again, if scripture is wrongly applied to men, then it can become very harmful to them. For example, like in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we just, we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it says, we have peace with God. But who is that peace with God for? Only those who have been justified by faith. It is not for those who are living in unrepentant sin. But if we give that passage to those living in unrepentant sin and say to them, you have peace with God, you have peace, peace, when there is no peace, we're misapplying the scripture to the ruin of those who are hearing us. And this is true here as well. And so it is very important for us to understand exactly who is the apostle describing? What are they doing? Right? What is he talking about, and what is it that they have done? Because if we wrongly apply this to those that it is not true of, then we are committing a spiritual malfeasance of the highest order. Also, it is important for us 
to rightly apply it, right? Because if we fail to apply it where it is useful or where it is necessary, then we're also depriving God's people, right? It is here. It is here in the Bible. And here the apostle is using it for their benefit, though he doesn't believe that this is a description of the Hebrew Christians yet, he also believes it is useful for them and beneficial for them for their sanctification and their growth in the Christian faith. Notice Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. He says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. There, he's convinced of better things concerning them. He's convinced that this is not a true description of them because he's seen enough fruit in their life. There's been enough manifestation of the work of God in their life that he's convinced that this isn't true of them. However, he also sees it as a crucial beneficial teaching so that they will shake off this sluggishness. And so it always is beneficial to us as well because one of the common temptations, a temptation that is common to all Christians is for us to grow weary, for us to become dull, for us to be sluggish in our faith, to not diligently attend to the Christian life as we should. The spirit is indeed welling, but the flesh is weak. And so long as we have this flesh of weakness, there is the need to have these warnings from Scripture to drive us on, right? To whip our flesh into shape so that it does not overcome us and so that we press on to maturity and press on to the upward calling in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why these warning passages are very beneficial to the church, to the believer, right? Because it causes us to press on and to shake off our sluggishness and to mature in our faith, which is what he wants them to do. Leave the elementary teachings of the Christ, press on to maturity. And one of the means established by God for such a pressing on are these warning passages. And so they are very beneficial to us. So then let's begin here. Verse four, he says there, for in the case of those, in the case of those, again, He's not saying that in the case of you, he's saying in the case of those. He doesn't believe that this is true of the Hebrew Christians at this point. Though they are sluggish, though they are wavering, though their faith is not steady and stable, though they are like infants and like children who are being tossed to and fro, they have not yet descended into open apostasy from the gospel. However, the danger is always there. For dullness of hearing will ultimately result in apostasy if one does not repent. However, in their case, they have not arrived at this sin yet. However, there are others who have. These are the ones that he's talking about. Those, right? It has happened before to them, and it will happen again, and it will happen throughout the course of human history. It will happen over the course of the life of any one individual church, that there are those who renounce the faith fully and finally, who will become open, unrepentant apostates from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some who have a temporary conversion. 
They make some profession of faith in Christ. They're baptized into the church. They receive some influence from the word of God and from the work of the Spirit. They attach themselves to the church, to the people of God. They may even have some temporary reformation in their life. They come into the faith, and for a time, they have the appearance of being a true disciple, of being a faithful follower of Christ. But then, after some period of time, they fall away. They go back to the world. They go back to their former idolatry or back to their former entanglements to sin. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, either by open blasphemy or by wicked living. They become apostates in one way or another or a mixture or a combination of both. Some do it theologically by renouncing true good doctrine and going back or going into a false religion or a false form of Christianity. For example, if someone denied uh, solid Reformed teaching and went and became a Roman Catholic, He would be renouncing good doctrine, leaving good doctrine to go to false doctrine. Or if someone was a Christian and forsook Christianity to become a Muslim, right? That person theologically is becoming an apostate because the things that he used to confess and profess about Christ and about God, he is renouncing those things in order to adhere to this false religion. But there are others still who will do this morally, who may still, if you ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, they might say yes. And they would still confess many of the doctrines that are found in the Bible. But say before their conversion, they were drunkards. And then they convert and they reform their life for a little bit. And then they go back and they become a drunkard again. In that drunken stupor, they may still claim to be a Christian. They may still say that they believe in Jesus and that they've trusted in him but they've gone back to their former sins. They are once again entangled in the world, and so in this way, they become an apostate, a moral apostate from the faith. Whether it be theological or moral, it can be one or the other, and typically these things are overlapping because they're always mixed in together. This is who he is describing here. Those who do such things. 1 John chapter 2 1 John chapter 2, 18 to 24, this passage, especially verse 19, is very important for understanding Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is the analogy of faith. Letting Scripture interpret Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. There specifically, verse 19 says that they went out from us. These are people who at one time associated with the Christian church. 
who claimed to be children of God, claimed to be followers of Christ. But they went out from us because they were not really of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be plain and obvious and shown to all that they are not all of us. Again, this is a parallel text that is key to understanding Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Scripture interpreting Scripture. 1 John 2, 19, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 are describing the same kind of person. Now here, were they ever really of us? When he says that, what does he mean? Does he mean they never associated with us? Does he mean that they never came to the services? That they never worshiped God with us? That they never talked with us about the things of God? Well, no, he doesn't mean that. But he means they were never really true believers, right? They were not true Christians because they were not really of us. They were of us outwardly. They were of us superficially. They were of us temporarily. But they were not truly of us spiritually and inwardly. They appeared to be of us. And the church can only do the best that she can do to discern between the sheep and the goats. But we can only go by what we see and by what we hear. Right? Man must only judge, and we can only judge to a certain extent. We cannot look upon the heart of every person so as to determine who is a true sheep and who is a false one. Who's the only one that can look at the heart? Only God has the ability to look at the heart. But the church receives people into its fellowship based upon a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ and based upon our testing to the best of our ability. But can we wait 40 years before we admit someone into the church to make sure that we know for certain that they are a true believer and that they're not going to fall away? Of course we can't do this, right? We have to do the best that we can, but we cannot with 100% accuracy admit only true believers into the church. There will be those who make a profession, who might join our ranks, who are pretenders, who are frauds and phonies. And the best example of this in the entire Bible is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, was he a true believer who lost his salvation, or was Judas false, a pretender, a fake, a phony from the very beginning? Well, let's see what it says in John 6. John 6, 66 to 71. Here, this also has bearing on Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Again, the analogy of faith, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. John chapter 6, verses 66 to 71. Actually, this applies to two people here. 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. What kind of disciples are they if they withdraw and no longer walk with Christ? They're not good ones, right? They're bad ones, right? They were temporary disciples, but they withdrew and they no longer followed him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, 
was going to betray him. Here, when Jesus is speaking of Judas Iscariot, has he made known and open to the rest of the disciples what he truly is at this point? No, at this point, he is still of us. He's still among them. But Jesus says here that one of you is a devil. Right? He doesn't say that one of you is a saint, but later on you will become a devil. He says one of you is a devil right now, though I know that you're pretending to be a saint, and you're still counted among the disciples and coming in and out among us as if you truly belong to the body of the disciples. And actually in Acts chapter 1, Acts 1, 15 to 17, Acts 1, 15 to 17, notice what Peter says concerning Judas. During the time when he was associated with them and with Christ and can still considered to be a true disciple of Christ. Acts 1, 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. There, he was counted among us. He was a part of us. He was one of the twelve. And he had a share in the ministry. Judas preached the gospel. Judas went about casting out demons. Judas healed those who were sick. Judas spent three years with Christ. And during that time, in terms of his profession, and in terms of his outward conformity, there was no substantial difference between Judas and the other eleven. Because when Jesus announces on the night that he was betrayed at the Lord's Supper that one of them was going to betray him, it's not like the other 11 all looked at Judas and said, we know who it's going to be, right? This guy's been a dud since the day that we've known him. None of them do that. What do they all think? Is he talking about me, right? Who is it? They don't have any idea who he's talking about. Though the entire time he was false. Now there was the incident of him stealing But he was doing this secretly. He wasn't doing it in the open. He was doing it secretly. But in terms of what he was outwardly, and in terms of his profession, in terms of his coming in and out among them and his share in the ministry, there was no substantial difference between Judas and the other 11. Though in terms of what he was inwardly, there was a very great difference between them and him. He's a child of the devil, and they all are children of God. He had the appearance of being a saint for a period of time. Yet ultimately, his true nature was revealed when he betrayed the innocent blood of Christ and handed him over to those who would crucify him. It became evident in the end that he was not of us by what he did. So it is possible for someone to have a temporary reformation, to have some understanding of the gospel, to have some conviction of sin, to have some kind of repentance from sin, to have some desire for Christ, for there even to be a measure of the Spirit's influence upon them, to make a profession of faith and to be counted among the disciples of Christ, to be received within the body of Christ, and to benefit from the work of the Spirit in the church, and even to take part in that work in some measure. How did Judas cast out demons? How did Judas heal the sick? 
By whose power did he do those things? He did it by the power of the Spirit. So all of these things were happening among him, yet the whole time he was false. He was not a true believer. He never was a possessor of salvation. He had a part in the power of the Spirit, but not in the grace. It was not there in his life. 2 Peter chapter 2 also describes these persons. 2 Peter 2 17 to 22. 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22. These are springs without water and mist driven by the storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Here, this is the type of person we're dealing with here. Dogs who return to their own vomit. Sows who, having been washed, return to wallowing in the mire. People who have some temporary sobriety. They see the misery of their sin, and they want to be delivered in a sense. They have conviction in a sense, but it's only a temporary reformation. Just like a dog that vomits and expels whatever it is that's causing his stomach to be upset. But no sooner does he expel it, then what does he do? He goes and he ingests it again. He goes back and he eats it back in. Or the sow that is washed, that is clean. It is so temporarily, But no sooner is the sow clean than it goes back to wallowing into the mire. And so these, they escape briefly the entanglements of sin, the entanglements of the world, right? He was a drunkard. He was an immoral man. He has guilt and conviction because of these things, and he gives his life to Christ, right, in a moment. But he does not consider what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He does not count the cost. He puts his hand to the plow But then he looks back to the world and he desires to go back to his former sins. And he forsakes Christ and he returns again to wallowing in the mire. And he says it would be better for this person for him to never have known the way of righteousness than to know it and then turn away from these things. This is the same as what we're seeing in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 6. Now, back to Hebrews 6.4. He gives five descriptions. Five descriptions of the privileges and advantages experienced by these apostates where they were made partakers of the gospel. How it is that they escaped the defilements of the world through a knowledge of Christ. And all of these privileges all have to do with the working of the Holy Spirit, especially in the new covenant and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of the church. All of these descriptions have to do 
with the Spirit's work among men, as it is seen in the preaching of the Word and the distribution of His gifts there amongst the body of Christ. But we will notice in these descriptions, there is nothing said about them being justified, nothing said about them ever being sanctified, nothing said about them being adopted into the family of God, of being washed by the blood of Christ, nothing of them being members of the covenant of grace or of God's love for them or of God's faithfulness towards them. Now, these things are mentioned in terms of the Hebrew Christians. He talks about salvation in terms of them. He talks about God's faithfulness, that God will not overlook their labor of love, but God will reward them and be faithful toward them. That's because he considers them to be true believers. But these apostates, because they were never really of us, they had no share or part in true salvation. So all of these things, these blessings that are true of a true child of God, he does not say these, any of these things were ever true of them. Only that in some way they partook of the privileges and advantages of the work of the Spirit that takes place in the church through the preaching of the gospel. So we're going to begin looking at these five descriptions. We'll cover the first two today and then the rest of them next week. First, notice what he says. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, they have once been enlightened. Here, they have been taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have come to, in some measure, an accurate understanding of the gospel. And they have made some improvement upon the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And that they have come to some type of enlightenment, some kind of understanding of this, so that they want to attach themselves to Christ attached themselves to the Christian church. In John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. In our natural state, we are in darkness. And it is the truth of the gospel that gives light, that illuminates men so that they can have a right understanding of God and how to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. In our idolatrous state, we are in darkness, we are in ignorance. There's no knowledge, no enlightenment, but only darkness, only death, only misery. And it is the gospel that gives us light, who gives us understanding. And who is the one working among men to give this illumination, to enlighten men and give them some understanding of the gospel? It is the Spirit who is convicting men of sin, who is convincing people of who Christ is. And they have been enlightened in some degree. They have some comprehension of spiritual truth, some comprehension of the gospel. They even see that it is superior or better to their former idolatrous religion. So they have forsaken their idolatry, or in this case, they have forsaken their false Judaism, and they have attached themselves to Christ and to the gospel and to the church. So they have this type of understanding. One might even have an enlightenment from the gospel, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 2, that leads them to even escape the defilements of the world. Isn't that what he said in 2 Peter chapter 2? that they escaped the defilements of the world. 
they come to some enlightened understanding of sin, of truth, of error, of righteousness, and they attach themselves to it for a period of time. An enlightenment that leads to understanding and leads to some application of these truths in the person's life, but not completely. It is a partial reformation, but not a full reformation. But what does Christ require of us? Does he require only a part of our life? Does he require only a part of our heart, that we reform only a part of who we are? Or does he require complete surrender to him? We must die to ourselves. We must be crucified with Christ. One may have some measure of enlightenment, some understanding of spiritual truth, even some application of that truth, but it does not rise to the level of true salvific enlightenment. It is more than merely hearing the gospel, right? That is the seed that is sown on the road. There are those who hear the gospel, but no sooner do they hear it, it's in one ear and out the other. The devil comes and snatches it away. But the seed that was sown on the rocky soil and the seed that was sown on the thorny soil, there are those who not only hear the word of God, but what else do they do? They receive it with joy. They even receive it. They agree with it. They affirm it. They even have joy in doing this. They are enlightened to a degree that the seed sown on the road is not enlightened. However, this enlightenment does not rise to the level of salvation. And so it is a great caution for us. It is a privilege for God to enlighten any of us, for us to hear and to have understanding and even to affirm the truths of the gospel. But this privilege can be lost if totally neglected, and it can lead to apostasy or ruin if we do not advance and we do not apply and take fully into our lives, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Secondly, he says, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Here, the heavenly gift I'm taking to be the Holy Spirit of God. He is the gift that comes down from heaven. And he is the heavenly gift who is working through the preaching of the gospel and who is working in the church of Jesus Christ. He is called a gift from God because he has been sent by God to apply the work of Christ to the believer. He is the one working among men, convicting of sin, opening the eyes of the blind, changing the hearts of men, causing us to walk in his way, distributing his gifts among the body. Acts chapter 2, Acts 2.38 and Acts chapter 8 verse 20 both refer to the Holy Spirit as the gift. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Also, Acts chapter 8, verse 20. He says, You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And why does it, Peter say this here to Simon? It is because, in verse 20, he thought that he could obtain the gift of God with money. 
And who is the gift of God that he is seeking to obtain? It is the Holy Spirit. When he sees that the Holy Spirit is given by the laying on of hands, then he wants to obtain this gift so that whoever he lays his hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. He thought that he could obtain the gift of God with money. Here, these apostates have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have some experience of the working of the Spirit and the blessings of the Spirit that he brings about in the new covenant. Though the new covenant was inaugurated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reformation in the worship of God was brought about by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit working through the apostles that brought about the reformation in the worship of God that we as Christians experience under the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is the one who removed the outward, physical, visible types and shadows of the old covenant and ushered in the new covenant with a worship that is superior, that is more spiritual, where there is more freedom than what they did there under the old covenant. And these persons described, they have an experience of the power of the Holy Ghost, of the gift of God in the times of the new covenant. They have tasted this. They have seen the purity of the worship the spirituality of the people, the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. They have seen all of these things. They have tasted it with their own mouth. They see how excellent it is. And by this taste, they were convinced for a moment that it was superior, that it was greater than what they had been accustomed to or what they have known before. Yet having tasted it, having seen its goodness and its superiority, having even affirmed the greatness of the blessing that they were under, they are now inclined to go back to their former manner of life, which is very relevant to the Hebrew Christians because this is exactly the sin that they are being tempted to commit, to leave Christ, to leave the new covenant, and to go back to the worship of God under the old covenant. And in this case, these apostates, they did not continue in the faith. They did for a moment, but then they went back. They're like the wilderness generation who tasted the goodness of God in their deliverance from Egypt, who recognized momentarily the superiority to their state of liberty in contrast to their state of bondage. Yet ultimately, they longed to return and go back to Egypt, to their former manner of life. Though they tasted and experienced the goodness of God, they agreed with it, they affirmed it for a moment, yet during the time of trial, they wanted to go back to their former manner of life. Now, in both of these descriptions, we see that one may have exposure to the work of the Spirit. One may even have some experience of His power and yet not be a true partaker of His grace. And what is it that manifests that these people were never truly of us? What is it that manifests that these apostates did not have a true participation in the power of the Spirit? It's that they do not endure. They do not endure to the end. They begin the race, but they don't finish the race. They grow weary, or the sufferings come, the hardships come, the trials and tribulations come, And then they withdraw and they no longer walk with Christ. As we read earlier from John chapter 6, verse 66. 
When Jesus gives them hard sayings, hard teachings, they say, they begin to grumble among themselves, this is a difficult teaching, who can understand it? And as a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They made some beginning in the Christian faith. They are even called disciples of Christ. But are they true disciples of Christ who withdraw and no longer walk with him? They were never truly disciples. They were false from the very beginning, withdrawing from Christ, not walking with him any longer. This begins by being dull of hearing, right? And actually in John chapter 6, that's exactly what they're doing. They're hearing the word of God, but they're sluggish. They're not attending to it. They're not making application of it to their own life. And isn't that what's happening here? They are being dull of hearing. They are being sluggish. And is this not a temptation that is common to us as well? For us to have exposure to the work of the Spirit, have exposure to the Word of God, to hear it, to read it over and over again, and yet it not be changing us, it not be advancing us and progressing us in our Christian faith, for us not to be maturing. How can we have such exposure to the Word of God and not make advancement in our faith, in our maturity, in our understanding, in our application of the Christian faith? Only if we're dull of hearing. Only if we have become sluggish and complacent and we're not diligent to attend to these things. And what is it that causes us to shake off this sluggishness? It is these warnings. Warnings from Scripture of the great danger of not attending to our faith. So we need to be diligent. Diligent to hear the Word of God, and not merely to hear the Word of God, but then to do what it says. This is where the blessing is found. Not merely in the hearing of the Word, but in the doing, in the obeying, in the believing of the Word of Christ. And this is what they are lacking in. And this, sadly, is often what we are lacking in as well. But let us press on to maturity. Let us be diligent to not be merely hearers of the word who do not do what it says, but those who hear and then who are quick to obey. It says in Hebrews 12, 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. They did not escape, the wilderness generation, they did not escape when Moses was warning them from earth. How will we escape with the one who's warning us from heaven? And who is the one warning us from heaven? It is our Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit and through his word that is among us today. So we must listen to him and we must not refuse when he speaks to us, but be diligent to improve and to attend to the word of God among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have provided everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, you know, you know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, you know what is in us. Lord, you know what is in our hearts. Lord, you know the desires that we have to be faithful to you, Lord, to overcome sin, to endure and to persevere in our faith. 
Lord, all of these desires are in us because you've given to us your spirit. And yet, Lord, we find that there is this constant war that the very things that we desire and what we want to do, we do not do. We find a law within us that when we want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Lord, we know that your spirit is always willing and that your spirit working within us is always leading us, Lord, to do what is right. And yet, we still have this body of flesh, a body of weakness. And Lord, how we long to be set free from it. Lord, to be liberated from this prison, Lord, that we find ourselves in. To be free to worship and serve you without any hindrances and without anything to drag us down and to entangle us so easily. Lord, we confess that we are very easily entangled by our sin. We are very easily distracted. Lord, we are sluggish and dull in our Christian faith. We grow weary in doing the things that we ought to do. We pray that you would forgive us. Lord, forgive us for not maturing as we should, for not being as faithful to you Lord, as we ought to be. For what else could we be but perfectly faithful to you? Lord, this is what you deserve, and this is what you desire in us, and yet we know that we can never present that to you in this life. But Lord, we pray that you help us. Give us strength. Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to perfect us and to mature us. Lord, that what is described here in this passage before us today, that it would not be true of us. Lord, though we know it is true of many, and we know that it is true of many throughout the history of the church, that there are those who fall away, who walk away from the faith, and who prove themselves to not be true disciples. But Lord, we don't want that to be true of us, and so we pray that you would grant to us endurance and perseverance in our faith, that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would be diligent and faithful. Lord, that we would discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness and that we would crucify the deeds of the flesh. And we pray, Lord, that you give us all that we need to accomplish this great task. Lord, knowing that anything that we have that is good has to come from you because there's nothing good that dwells in any of us. Lord, that is in our flesh. So we pray, Father, that you would seal us and that you would keep us, and that even today, Lord, the word that we have heard, you would use, Lord, this warning in order to drive us on to shake off the sluggishness of the flesh, to be diligent, and to persevere in our faith. So, Lord, grant to us all that we need for salvation, Lord, according to your will, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.